Last week we started our series going through the books of Genesis and Revelation in a series called Alpha and Omega. Everyone say Alpha and Omega. And as we jumped into launching this series, our God statement last week was simply God is good. Can you say God is good? Hallelujah. And all the time? God is good. That works. That works. You're supposed to say God's good. It's okay. So we talked about how God is good. One more time. I'm going to say God is good. good. There we go. There's unity. And as we talked about kind of this, this, this simple statement that God is good, we really leaned into the fact that, hey, we can say this and say that we believe it, but how do we actually know that God is good? What happens when we see brokenness and evil in the world? What do we do with that? How do we believe that God is good? And, and this is really kind of the foundation that we build on. And if you don't really believe that who God is is that God is a God who is good, then you're going to have a really hard time walking in relationship with him, right? You're, you're going to have a really hard time trusting him because if you don't believe he is good, then it's really difficult to walk with Jesus and to trust him. And so if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. But as we lean into today's message, I want us to to continue off of that foundation of knowing that our God is good. Everything he does is good. Everything he creates is good. Everything he says is good. Everyone say, God is good. good. Tonight, we're going to lean into this God statement. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. That God makes all things New. Everyone say, all things new. God makes all things new. If you have your Bibles, I want you to to turn to the very end of Genesis 2. The very end of Genesis chapter 2, the last verse, verse 25. And it'll be up on the screen as well. Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Bear with me. I know this is a weird place to pick up scripture. Okay, some of you are like... What are we talking about in church? <laughs> Hold on. I thought we were talking about Genesis and Revelation. Is this, just hang with me, okay? Everyone say, not ashamed. Not Pay attention to that word, not ashamed, okay? Moving on. Some guys are like, what is church? Preem's laughing very much, so I love it. Okay, Genesis 3, here you go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Everyone say, like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wiser, to give insight, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Let me pause here. If you're, if you're a dude in this room, if you're a guy, look at me. Don't ever be this guy. I remember the first time I realized, this is crazy, the first time I realized that, like, Adam was just right there with Eve. Like, she's talking to a serpent. Like, snakes, snakes are demonic. They're gross, right? And he's just sitting there like, this garden's pretty beautiful, man. Like, like dude, like, step in and say something. Don't be passive. Men, say, don't be passive. That's not the point of it. Okay, there we go. Uh, verse 7, here we go. Shh. 
He takes the fruit and he eats it with her. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. Shh, listen. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. If you have your Bible, I want you to underline that. Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to to be with me. Pause. If you're a dude, look at me in the room. Strike two. This is not even the point of the message. Some of you, some of you ladies are going to be like amening me more than the, the men. Okay, men, this is not marriage conference, this is, but let's just, let's just pay attention here. Okay, you do something wrong. What is, what is the wrong response? She did it. Don't do it. I've only been married like 15 months. I know better than to be like Adam in that moment, okay? Don't you blame your wife. Marriage lesson number two. Okay, moving forward, moving forward. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Pay attention here to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Pay attention to that verse. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now if you have your Bibles, turn to the very, very back of your Bible. Revelation 21. Verse 3. I want to reread this. We read this passage last week. Shh. Pay attention, friends. Pay attention. Revelation 21.3 says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Everyone say former things. If you have your Bible, I want you to underline that. Former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Everyone say all things new. God makes all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. and I will be his God and he will be my son. Brothers and sisters, bow your head and let's pray together. Father God, help us to know tonight that you are a God who is so beautiful, so good. Lord, we don't want to ever get to a point where we try to move past the beautiful reality and truth that you are good. That you are so much better than anything or anyone in this world. That anything this world could offer is just nothing in comparison to you. 
And Holy Spirit, we need your help tonight to see the Father and Jesus as beautiful, as better than anything else. God, I believe there are so many in this room who there is a lot of brokenness, fracture, suffering, things that feel dead and too far gone that you are going to redeem, that you're going to make all things new, that you will restore. So God, give us faith to believe in you. Give us eyes to see you as beautiful and faith to believe that you are good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You're with me. Love it. Let me ask you this question. How many of you in this room have ever done something wrong? Such humility. Such humility. Besides a few of you, I I saw some people. Nah, I'm good, bro. Yeah, you're a liar. Uh, so, like, for, for everyone in this room, we have done something wrong before, right? Now, let me ask you this question. When you do something wrong, what is your natural instinct of what you do next? What, what's the natural instinct? Often, you, you lie. Who, who in here is a liar? Just, just be honest. Yeah. This is awesome. This is the most humility I've seen. This is amazing. Okay, who here is, like... Who here is kind of like the king or queen of like trying to hide it and act like it never happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, how about this one? This is especially true if you have siblings in this room, I think. Wait, wait, I didn't even, I didn't even ask you. Put your hands down. Put your hands down. I said siblings. Everyone said, yeah, sin is real, bro. Sin is real. I need to be sanctified. Okay, who in this room your go-to if you're not going to hide or if you're not going to lie, you're going to blame? I had two twins here. One dude raised his hand and his twin pointed at him. They're like, yeah, they know. All right, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. All right, yeah, we all have a natural instinct from a very young age that when we do something wrong, we hide, we lie, we blame, right? Like this is conditioned into us at a very young age. Something I love about life right now is, is so many of Lindsay and I's friends have like the cutest little kids, right? Who, who here loves little kids? They're just like precious. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm so ready to be an uncle to, to Victor and Preem's daughter, maybe, or son. I think it's a girl, but anyways. But, like, I'm so ready for that. But something I love about kids, something I love about watching kids is this. Is, is even, like, at the age of, like, one years old, when, when they're doing something that is, like, really funny or, like, they're doing something really awesome and, like, everyone cheers, right? Like, you're, like, cheering on a little baby because, like, they're playing hide and seek and you're, like, yeah, like, it's amazing. Like, they have such a sense of like pride and like a smile, right? Like even at a young age, they know that if they do something right, they'll be celebrated. If they do something right, they'll get rewarded, which on the flip side of that means that from a very young age, you and I in our sin nature that dwells within us, we know that, that when we do something wrong, that will not be celebrated, right? When we do something wrong, when we fall short on something, we, we won't be celebrated for that. No one's going to be clapping, being like, great job sinning, bro. Like, no one's going to be doing that, right? And the reality is, is that from a young age, we learn to either hide, lie, or blame when we fall short. I remember when I was four years old, this is, this is really funny. What's funny about little kids is when they try to, like, hide something, it's like almost makes it more obvious, you know? Like, they have no idea. Like, four-year-old me is like, I am literally like Ethan Hunt, Mission Impossible, like, 
I'm sneaky, right? But it's like actual four-year-old is like, bro, I see you trying to hide it right now. Like you're not, you're not sly. I remember my, my, all three of my older siblings were a good amount older than me. And so when I was like four years old, I still had nap time. Anyone here hate taking naps? Bro, I wake up and I'm angry at the world. Like I'm ready like... Why, did, why is existence existence? Like, I get so mad when I wake up. I'm grumpy. But so at like four years old, all my siblings are awake, and I had to nap. And so I wake up, and, and I had to go to the bathroom. And en route to the bathroom, shh, en route to the bathroom, I see my brother's computer. And this is in like 2005 when like you played computer games. You, and, and like the way you did that, let me explain here. The way you played a computer game is you had a disc, like a DVD. And you, and you put the DVD on the tray and you hit the button and it goes in and all of a sudden it's like a game appears on your like desktop. It's amazing. We didn't have Xbox 360 or Xbox One or PS 800. I don't know how many Playstations there are. But like, so, so I'm passing my brother's room and I see that he left a game up on his screen. And so I'm like, this is my moment. This is my moment. So all my siblings are downstairs. My mom is downstairs. So I walk, I like walk over. I'm supposed to be napping. And I have no idea what I'm doing on the game. But I start playing the game. And then all of a sudden, my oldest brother, Augustine, comes up to his room. And he sees super cute, precious, four-year-old me playing a game. And he's like, Mateo, what are you doing? And I have this moment of like, like, like just deep fear of like, and I, and I and say nothing. I just run over to my room, pull the covers over me, and <laughs> act like I'm asleep, right? And so Augustine does what all good siblings should do. He tells mom. And so, and so mom comes up, and so my, my mom, you know, really sweet, knowing full well that when I wake up from naps, I'm, like, really unsanctified, right? And so she comes up, and she, like, has, like, a nice, like, gentle voice. And so she's, like, trying to, like, wake me up slowly, knowing full well that I was awake. And, like, I put on the full acting job. She's like, hey, Mateo, are you awake? Yeah. Is, mom, is that you? Like, like knowing full well, like, I, I had done something I was not supposed to do. But the reality is for all of us from a young age, we learn to hide, blame, and lie. Everyone say hide, blame, lie. Hide, blame, lie. And what we see here in Genesis 3 is this sharp twist early on into the great story of Scripture. Where in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God makes all things and he makes everything good. And there's great and perfect relationship between God and mankind and between humans with each other. Adam and Eve, they're not blaming each other, sinning. They're faithful in marriage. And, then, and you see even uh, mankind's relationship with all of creation is good. The world that God made is, is good. And then we see in Genesis 3 right away that they start to doubt God's goodness. And this is why we started last week with this God statement, God is good. Shh, listen, listen. Because when, when you kind of lean in, what you see in Genesis 3 is that the enemy starts to question God's goodness. Right? He starts asking Eve with Adam just like chilling there super checked out. He started asking them, did God actually say? Shh, listen, listen. Did God actually say? What the enemy starts to do is plant seeds of doubt that God is withholding from them. That God is actually not a good God. That he's insecure and stuff, so he doesn't want to give a good gift to Adam and Eve. What we see is that the enemy starts lying about the goodness of God, which leads Adam and Eve to sin, right? And in this moment of sin, we see the kind of the first fracture that leads to countless more fractures which still affect the world today. 
because of sin, this disease. And what we see instantly is in this passage, we see two things kind of uh, that, we ha- that we don't see in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's the existence of fear and shame. Everyone say fear and shame. We see fear and shame creep in. And friends, what I want to talk about tonight is the reality that God makes all things new. And, and what we see in Genesis 3 is that instantly when sin comes into the world, fear and shame lead Adam and Eve to hide from God. Right? Now what do these words mean? Let's get kind of a base definition because fear and shame are very broad words, right? In Hebrew, the, 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 the word for um, fear is yare. Everyone say yare. Such scholars, amazing, amazing. Yare, and what it simply just means to be afraid or to be terrified. Now pay attention here. There's actually a, a good version of this word and a bad version of this word. This word yare is kind of the same way, the same word we get the, the, the phrase the fear of the Lord from. Now let me, let me talk about this. The fear of the Lord is actually something that is really, really beautiful. Okay? Sometimes when we think about the fear of the Lord, like our own, our own version of like definition of fear starts to kick in. And we're like, what does that mean? Like, am I supposed to be like scared of God? Like avoid him? Like hide? No, no. The fear of the Lord is something beautiful. It's based on reverence, honor, and awe of who God is. Right? When we, when we get a picture and a revelation of how amazing and beautiful and just, and just so much better God is than anything else, it leads us to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Are you with me? What we see is that, is that the bad version of fear, especially in our relationship with God, is when we fear who God is, we fear that he is not who he says he is. And so what do we see here in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve, they are instantly afraid. Everyone say afraid. afraid. They, they are afraid because they sin and all of a sudden their eyes are open and, and they start to see themselves as not good. And so that's why they hide themselves and cover themselves, and they are afraid of God. You see, the fear of the Lord draws us to God in worship. Fear about what God might do or fear that God isn't who he says he is draws us away from him. Are you with me? Are you with me? Then there is this word for shame, which is bosh. Everyone say bosh. Nice. Bosh means to be ashamed, to be embarrassed, or to be disappointed. Now let's talk about this, right? Because we talk about shame, and sometimes I think we think that, that shame is what we deserve as Christians, or that we should feel a sense of like, like shame if, if we sin or we fall short. But I would say there's a distinction between shame and conviction. Everyone say conviction. Shame and conviction. Let me kind of just make this really clear to you, because when I was growing up and for so many years, shame is something that, that kept me from God, that made me hide from God rather than going to him. What shame says is when you make a mistake, when you fall short, shame says you are bad. You are evil. You are a sinner. You are, shame comes at your identity of who you are. And friends, hear me, that is not from the Lord. What conviction says is what you did was wrong. Come to him. What What you did was wrong. But you are loved by God, and you can come to him. Are you with me? Are you with me? So what we see here is shame and fear. What they do is they keep 
people, they keep Adam and Eve from coming to God. Now let me make this really, really clear right off the bat. Because I, I think for many of you in this room, if you were to be honest with yourselves, everyone listen, everyone listen, look at me. If you were to be honest with yourself, you have a lot of fear, like you're afraid of God, if you were to be honest with yourself. Or like, like you carry immense shame and you think that God is disappointed in you. You think that God's embarrassed by you. You think God's sitting up there in heaven looking at the way you live saying, bro, you're still struggling with that? You haven't gotten over that sin yet? You've been walking with me for, for how many years? You've called yourself a Christian, but you, you still struggle with that? I'm disappointed in you. I think that's often what we think God is saying to us. That's how God sees us. And I want to I disband that right away. If you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. I want to go through this real quickly. What do we see about who God is right in the moment when sin begins, when the fall happens, when Adam and Eve literally, the first fracture that leads to the fracture of the whole world, how does God react? Is he angry and distant and far off, or what do we see in God? Genesis 3, 8 says this, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Ever say walking in the garden. Walking in the garden, the cool of the day. What do we see? That right after Adam and Eve sin and they fall short. Does God distance himself? Does God say, I need to be far away from you, you're despicable? Or God knowing exactly that Adam and Eve would sin in this moment, God being all-knowing, knowing exactly that this day, this time, Adam and Eve would fall short. He comes and he walks in the garden. Friends, hear me. In your sin, where you feel shame, God comes close to you. Are you with me? That's verse, that's verse 8. Moving forward, verse 9, what do we see? Is that the Lord speaks to them. He says, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Where are you? Now, God doesn't ask this question because he doesn't know, right? If we believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and he knows all things, then he's not coming and being like, I don't, I don't know where they're at. But when, when God comes to the garden and he says, where are you? He's saying, hey, I, I, want you, I want to be with you. Where are you at? Why are you hiding? He's giving them a chance to come to him. And we see that Adam and Eve, they hide themselves and, and they feel ashamed. And in verse 11, we see this really important question that God asks. is after Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, God says, who told you that you were naked? Everyone say, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? What God is saying is this. Whose voice besides mine defines you? Pay attention here. Listen, listen. Whose voice is saying you are not good, that you need to hide yourself? Whose voice? Who is saying that the way I created you is not good, and so that's why you need to hide and be distant? Who told you? Whose voice defined you? And so from the very beginning, God wants to challenge Adam and Eve and say, look, hey, this is, this is what the enemy says about you. This is not who I have created you to be. And then in verse 15, pay attention here. This is what God does immediately after the fall. Verse 15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is as God is cursing the serpent. And he says about the offspring of Eve, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And what we see here is this is actually a promise about what Jesus would do. Right? That Jesus who becomes a man, he becomes flesh, he's a descendant of Eve. He comes and he conquers the enemy, right? When Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and raises back to life, he makes a way for right relationship with God. And so from the very beginning, what God does in sin, what God does in brokenness, when Adam and Eve literally break everything in the universe, that God doesn't pull back and say, okay, I want to be far away from you. He comes and he speaks to them. And he, and he wants to know that his voice defines them. And he tells them, hey, I have a promise for redemption. Everyone say redemption. Promise for redemption. You see, what we see in Scripture, that God's plan has always been to redeem a broken and sinful people. Friends, when you pick up this book, let me tell you the number one theme in this book. This is a story of redemption. Everyone say redemption. This is a story of redemption, of God buying us back from sin, from death, and making a way for us to have right relationship with God again, for all things to be good again. That's what this book is about. It's from the very beginning, God's plan and purpose is to redeem all things, to make all things right, not just with you and within humanity, but all of creation. Pastor Andrew Arndt said this on at church a Friday night, simple statement, write this down if you're taking notes. He said, it is the will of God to bring disorder to an end. It is the will of God to bring disorder to an end. And friends, what we see is from the very beginning of scripture to the very end is that God will deal with sin. Amen? That he will deal with sin, that he is going to do something about it. That all death and sin and suffering and tears will be done away with and he will make all things new. He will make all things right. Friends, hear me. God has always planned on redemption. Everyone say redemption. So let me suggest three simple things to you about redemption and what it means that God makes all things new. If you're taking notes, write these down. Number one, everyone say number one. Is that God has made it possible for you to be made new. God has made it possible for you to be made new. Go ahead and put up that next passage, Tony. What do we see? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? Oh, you guys are very quiet. If anyone is in Christ, they are a? The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Friends, what do we see here in this passage? That the good news of scripture and the good news of the gospel is this. That, that Jesus didn't come just to make your life a little bit better. Sometimes we talk about Christianity like that. Like, yeah, it's like, you know, helps me get through my day. Helps me be nicer to my sibling. Helps me just, like, try harder in school and be a better person. A little bit more of a more, like, moral person. Friends, if that's all that Christianity is, what a weak religion. Right? What a weak religion. If it, if it just kind of boils down to you being a bit of a better person and maybe like earning eternity, like that is such a shallow and weak religion. But what we see is that what God actually desires is for dead things to come back to life. Right? For, for you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, which is what scripture tells us about us, because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what we deserve is eternal death with the enemy. But what God does is he makes a way for us who were dead to be made back to life. Are you with me? 
to be made back to life. And what this passage is saying in 2 Corinthians 5 is if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Friends, hear me. When we say that God makes all things new, that's, just, that's not just kind of like out there. Like he'll like kind of make like a new city and heaven will look cool and like streets of gold and whatever that looks like. like no, like he wants to make you new. Are you with me? He wants to make you new. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Think about Galatians 2.20. Here's your moment. What does Galatians 2.20 say? For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Good work. I wish I wasn't up there to see, like, did you guys actually memorize it? Because you had a little cheat sheet. But I believe you. I believe you. What does this verse say? That, if, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Friends, God has given his son Jesus so you can be redeemed and brought back to life so the broken things in your life can be made whole. Can you say amen? This is the good news of the gospel. Number two. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Number two is this, is that God makes all things new, yes, but already that God sees you as a new creation today. God sees you as a new creation already. Now pay attention here, pay attention. What this means is, is often we can kind of think about this, this idea of being a new creation. As we, we see language in scripture like in Colossians 3 where it talks about putting to death therefore what is of the old self. And there is this process to becoming more like Jesus and putting to death the old self and like putting on the new self. But also what, what is so good about the gospel is that in this process of becoming more like Jesus and him making us whole and making us new by sanctifying us, which is actually a really beautiful thing, what we see is actually God already sees you as a new creation. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is what this passage says. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no Sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, what this passage is telling us, what this good news is, is that when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't just see like a work in progress. When God the Father looks at you, it's not like someone who's like, yeah, they're still really dealing with their sin nature. They're early on into that stage. No, when God looks at you, you know what he sees? He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 8.1. It says, there is now no condemnation. Everyone say, no condemnation. No. Come on, everyone say, no condemnation. No. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Friends, I want everyone to look at me. Look at me, look at me. Nobody on their phones, look at me. I want you to hear this good news. If you are a believer in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you. You are forgiven. Hear these words. Don't just like, just like, I know like you, like you know this in your head. Like I want you to know in your heart to believe you are forgiven. That when God looks at you, he doesn't condemn you, but he sees you as forgiven, as the righteousness of God. Are you with me? Are you with me? Now, and this is, this is what is beautiful, is that because God makes all things new, and he sees you as a new creation already, that means that actually we have no reason to live in shame or fear. 
right? And where we feel a temptation to hide from God because of shame or because of fear, just like Adam and Eve did. What scripture informs us is that because of Christ, we are the righteousness of God. Because of Christ, there is now no condemnation, which means this. God is not ashamed of you. And God is not disappointed in you. And God is not embarrassed by you. Can you hear that tonight? Shh, pay attention, pay attention. God is not embarrassed by you. Even on your worst day, when you may feel embarrassed of yourself, even on your worst day where you feel like a straight sinner, it's like, gosh, I, I know I'm, I don't, I don't want to live in this way, but I keep doing it. God is not embarrassed by you. God is not ashamed of you. Hear that tonight. Last passage on this point. 1 John 4 says this. Bella, you can go ahead and come on up for, for keys. 1 John 4, 16 through 19. Oh, you're right there. Hi, Bella. Says this. Listen to this closely. Scotty, if we could go ahead and bring the lights down. Verse 16 says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Everyone say God is love. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Next slide. It says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence. Everyone say confidence. So we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18. There is now no fear in love. Everyone say no fear. There is now no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 19, listen to this beautiful statement. We love because he first loved us. Friends, hear me. God wants to make you new, which means this. The shame and the fear that tries to keep you from God, that makes you want to hide from God, that makes you feel like you have to kind of avoid him. And, and, if, and if you were to be honest with yourself, like you really think that God is just disappointed and embarrassed of you because of your struggles, because of where you fall short. Hear me. There's no fear in love. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. But we have confidence. When we come to God the Father, no matter what the enemy tries to accuse us of, no matter what the devil tries to say about accusing us of how many times we've fallen short, how many times we've been unfaithful to God, you know what God the Father sees when he looks at you? His son, his daughter, who is forgiven, who is good, who is a new creation. Friends, God sees you as a new creation creation. He wants to set you free from fear and shame. And the last thing is this, number three, that God will make all things new. What does this mean that God will make all things new? Look one more time at this passage in Revelation with me. Then we're going to have some time in prayer. Revelation 21 verse 4. Pay attention to this. Shh, listen, listen. I want you to try to picture this. We talked about this verse last week and it's, it's so beautiful. We can keep talking about it. Revelation 21.4, this is about Jesus. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. Friends, hear me. It is God's will, his desire to make all things new, to make all things right. I think I said this last week, but I want to say it again. For some of you in this room, you are walking through intense suffering, trial. You've seen death in your family or someone close to you. There's been a lot of mourning maybe. A lot of tears, a lot of crying, a lot of heartbreak. Friends, hear me. God cares so much about that. Hear me. God God cares so much about that. He cares so much that when Jesus comes back, he's not really just concerned with just like kicking the devil's butt and being like, whoa, Jesus is awesome. Like, what does it say? When he is coming back to make all things new, what does he do? He wipes every tear from our eyes. Picture that type of king. Friends, hear me. Picture that type of king. Who in his final victory, when he comes back and, and, and he throws Satan away in hell forever. Picture this type of king. He's not where they're celebrating. He's coming down to his children, his people. And he's saying, hey, I know you've been through a lot. Hey, I know you are mourning. Hey, I know you've been walking through so much difficulty. I'm here to wipe your tears. I'm dealing with death and sin and suffering. Those who have hurt you and abused you and taken advantage of you, they will be judged. God cares for you so much. This is what we're going to do. One of our leaders, our volunteers, to stand up and kind of come up to the front, to the sides. We're going to take some time to, to pray. Just to pray. And I want to ask you this simple question for you to think about. Even right where you're at, just close your eyes. Close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. Just focus in for a few more minutes. I don't want anyone leaving this room. No one going to the bathroom. No one to get water. Stay in here. With your eyes closed, everyone eyes closed, I want you just to ask yourself this question. Where do I need God to make all things new in my life? Where do I need God to restore me? Where do I need God to restore the brokenness in my life and to make it whole? Everyone close your eyes, close your eyes. Where do, I, where do I need God to make me whole, to restore me? To make something new, to take what is broken. Close your eyes, close your eyes. To take what is broken, where there is hurt, where there is pain. To ask, where do I need his healing? 
Now open your eyes and look at me. Hear me. It is God's desire to make you whole. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, doesn't just have to do with making sure, like, you get saved, you pray a prayer, you don't go to hell, you get to go to heaven, and Jesus is like, cool, my work is done. No, Jesus cares about you so much. The things that break your heart break his heart. Where you are experiencing pain and mourning and death, he cares so much that one day he will deal with that eternally, but also he's given the Holy Spirit to be with you now. When we talk about the end times, it's not just like, oh, cool, like, so Jesus is going to do something one day, so right now I'm hopeless. No. Because of his death and his resurrection, he has given his spirit to you. And guess what? He's given you each other. He's given us the body of Christ to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to be there for each other, to encourage each other. Hey, remember who God is. He will take what is broken and make it whole. He will take what is dead and bring it back to life. That's what we're going to do in this room. Because I want you to be bold. And if you feel like there's something in your life where you need God to restore it, to make it new, to bring something that feels dead in you back to life, I want you to come up and ask for prayer. Fellas, go ahead and go to, to guys and ladies, go with ladies. But I want to take some time to pray. And if you don't want to come up for prayer, I want you to, to continue to ask God that question, Lord, where do I need you to restore me, to make me new? Let's go ahead. I just want everyone just to stand up. You can spread out. You can get down on your knees. But this is time for just you and the Lord or you coming to, to a leader for prayer. This isn't time to hang out. It's not time for talking. I want to encourage you. If you're feeling afraid to come and ask for prayer, these people are safe. They got you. And as you come up, let me, just, let me just say this, just to make this clear. Because we love you, because we care for you so, so much, it's our responsibility as, as your leaders that, that if anything comes up where maybe you're struggling with, with self-harm or suicidal thoughts, our, our leaders are going to go ahead and, and bring myself or Miss Ruth Ann or Pastor Victor into that, okay, because, because we care about you, because we want to make sure you're safe. Because we want to be honest with you guys so you don't feel like they're betraying confidence. We do that because we want to keep you guys safe. I want you guys to go ahead and come up for prayer if you're led. In a few minutes, we'll go into worship. But during these few minutes, I want you either praying with the Lord or coming up to a leader. Take a few minutes to come to the Father.